Deuteronomy 1, starting verse 9. At that time I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you all, at that time all the things that you should do. Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed wandering sheep. We we wander from your commands. We wander from you and your glory. And we need a good shepherd who will restore us. We need leadership to bring us home and to protect us. And you've provided exactly that by sending your son. So I pray that as we consider your word, as we consider the necessity of leadership, the necessity that men would lead and care for your people, I pray that you would help us to see Christ clearly through this and that your spirit would make us like him, that we would faithfully obey your word, that we would faithfully care for those around us as men, and that all of us, man, woman, and child, would come under our word in full faith and obedience, that you might be honored and praised in all that we do and think and say. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's been a, a, a number of times you hear encouraging things about what pastors are doing for their their congregations and it's sweet to hear um a few weeks ago um the ladies had their brunch and that we during our sharing time i think it was miss barb was sharing about how they had a, a time to share what they were thankful for and one of the things they they shared was their thankfulness for the the male leadership in this church and of all the things that I've heard that are really encouraging to hear um, a congregation be thankful for, to hear women thankful for God-glorifying male leadership was simultaneously very unique and just profoundly encouraging. This is how it should be, that, that the ministry of the elders and teachers in the church would create a situation for everyone to thrive, especially the women and children, to the glory of God. And so what we're seeing in that, and what we should be seeing, is that masculinity is a good thing, biblically defined. Masculinity, in Exodus 34, sorry, Ezekiel 34, was really helpful in illustrating this. Masculinity, understood in a biblical sense, is not the shepherd, the man, the leader, feeding himself. It is him providing for. It is him protecting those under his care. And it's very interesting. That imagery in Ezekiel 34 is building off the garden. Adam was supposed to, to work. He was supposed to provide. He was supposed to keep. He was supposed to protect. He was supposed to do these things. 
so that his bride and his children would thrive. So proper masculinity, biblically defined, is anything but toxic. It is, it is the sort of thing that allows there to be blessing in the world. And so when we're talking about masculinity, I'm just going to assume biblical before that word. I'm just going to continue to use the word throughout. So when you hear me say masculinity, I'm assuming biblical masculinity. Masculinity is something that ought to be championed. It should be encouraged. We should encourage men to act like men. Because God has designed this world and commanded men to be the cornerstones of marriages, of families, of churches, of workplaces, so that through male leadership, God's glory would spread throughout the entirety of the earth. God has called men to, to yes, provide bread, to, to provide substance, to feed those under their care. And that includes as well, not just physical bread, but giving them the bread of life, leading them to Christ, that they would not just have full tummies, but that they would be made full in Christ in Colossians 2 terms. Additionally, we, we need to, to protect those under our care. That is good and right. We need to protect the women and children God has entrusted to us. That even goes to the point of when we sometimes have to protect them from themselves and their sin. Male leadership, male caring and protection is to reach into the very soul of those under our care that they might find eternal blessing and not just temporal blessing. So the Bible shows us these things. The Bible shows us what it means to be a godly man. And we see this come to its head in Christ. He is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. God said he was going to be the shepherd. And yet, what else did he say? He said he was going to send a son of David to be shepherd. And how is how are those both fulfilled? The God-man has come. He has come. I love the songs, especially the last verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I don't know that I had heard it up until now. I feel kind of gypped. But, but that's it, isn't it? We need a better Adam who can crush the serpent and care for his bride and bring God's children home. That's what Christ has done. That is manliness. When we think of manliness... The first thing that should come into our minds is Jesus Christ. So we, the church, should be the first and foremost champions of masculinity and of patriarchy. Are we? And within American evangelicalism, I think the obvious answer is no. And I'm going to explain why. And as I'm explaining why, I'm going to preface and say that what I'm going to explain is neither an ivory tower experience. This is something that um, I've studied and I've seen. And unfortunately, this is not a holier-than-thou thing that I'm going to be talking about because I have been guilty of these things. I have done the sort of ministry I'm going to show as being unbiblical and faulty. And I know I'm going to have to give an account for that, and I'm not looking forward to it. I know that part of my ministry is going to get burned up. But we need, we need to pinpoint this. We need to see where we are weak that we might turn and find grace in being humble before the Lord. So to illustrate what I mean, where has the American evangelical, American evangelical Church failed in this regard? Well, I think part of it is seen um, by what happens in a typical church when a family walks in the door. Actions speak. Our, our works indicate something about what we believe. And when a family walks into a typical church, what happens? They don't 
they don't stay in the same space, do they? They they go all their different places. Baby, you can go to nursery. Child, we have a, a children's church for you. Youth, we have a youth group for you. Um, wife, you can go to the, the women's study. And then the man's masculinity just goes down the tubes. Because the actions of separating the family says to, to, to the, the man, we'll do this for you. That has not been to, to our benefit. In addition to, to what our actions say, money speaks. What we do with our money is, is a form of work that indicates what we believe in. The money that's been spent on children's pastors and youth pastors and on discipleship's pastors, that money says that it sends this message that, that men don't have to take as seriously their role because we're going to subsidize other people doing part of their responsibility for them. And as the saying goes, you always get more of what you subsidize. The church has not championed masculinity, and part of it is because we've not even given room or responsibility to the men in the church. We've allowed specialists to step in and to do this sort of demographic-based ministry where it's like, well, what, what can we offer to you as an individual based off of who you are? And what that has resulted in, and again, when I'm thinking about who's guilty of this, I have to start with myself. I've done this. What that has resulted in is a sort of navel-gazing. Because our ministry is based off of you and your demographics and what do you want, that is that is a turning into self-looking that has robbed the people of God from a looking at Christ that would actually lead to their blessing and benefit. And the results of this are, are rather obvious. We see, we see within American evangelicalism, uh, you, there's I think Ligonier is the one who does the study I, I, forgive me if I'm wrong. There's a study that comes out each year that talks about what are people believing when they claim that they're a Christian in America. And the results are not good. A lot of those people are claiming to be Christian, and then what they say they believe indicates that they're actually not at all. We are doctrinally weak as a result of this. We have marriages that, if they actually stay intact, are, let's just say, significantly hindered from demonstrating the gospel because men are not being taught to be men, and women are not being taught to be women. Those marriages are weak. They're not reflecting the gospel as they're called to. And we see this with, with children. Children growing up to be theologically weak themselves, so many of them growing up in, in a youth group culture end up leaving, and the ones that stay oftentimes stay only as much as they can retain their worldliness in a comfortable way within the walls of the church. And what I've found in my experience in doing this sort of ministry myself, you know what you don't hear? When you're doing that sort of ministry, you don't hear women say, I am thankful for the male leadership in my church. So obviously this is this text is going to come at us. It already is. But we need this. This is here to help us. And as we're going to see, this is a reminder of God's grace to provide what we need. So what we need, we need men who act like men. We need men who will lead in, in their marriages in their parenting, in their churches, in the workplace, and who not only lead in every area of life, but surrender in obedience to God in all that they do. Every area of life and in everything we do at every point in time must be surrendered to the God who reigns. And as churches, we need to champion such masculinity. We cannot be subsidizing abdication of responsibility for men. 
that has wreaked havoc, and we just can, cannot continue into it. So the main point, I finally made a short main point. God gives male leadership as a blessing to his people. God gives male leadership as a blessing to his people. And I think the context here really helps us. We're looking at Deuteronomy. This is, like we had mentioned, we'll see this really explicitly in Deuteronomy 29. This book is a covenant. It's a covenant to keep the covenant that God made at Sinai with some new added um, variables alongside it. So this is a covenant to keep the Sinai covenant for the second generation of Israelites who are entering into the land. So we have a new generation going into a new context. So God is making a new covenant with them to obey his law to obey the covenant that had been made at Sinai. And so the opening of Deuteronomy, we'll see this through the first few chapters here, is God recounting history for the Israelites. And it's recounting his history for a specific reason and way to impact them. We, we are seeing their profound unfaithfulness, and we'll continue to see that. And yet what we're going to see as well is God keeping covenant at every single point. We're going to see multiple covenant pieces of faithfulness, even just in this one short passage we're going to cover here in Deuteronomy 1. So I'm saying a lot of hard things here at the outset, but this is the hard things we're going to see here are couched in the grace of God that is put here at the beginning of Deuteronomy to show that it is the foundation for this covenant. It is God's grace and faithfulness upon which this rests. And so there's immense comfort to be found if we will humble ourselves before the word of God. So verse 9 says, At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. We'll come back to that word uh, bear uh, in just a verse or two here. We're going to unpack that. One thing I would want to point out here right off the, off the bat in verses 9 and 10, says the Lord your God has multiplied you. That's the same word from Genesis 1 for what God called Adam and Eve to do. God's doing what he said he would do, even in spite of the fall. He has multiplied Israel, fulfilling uh, his, his promises in that covenant with Adam as it's been re-promised to Israel. He's been doing that just as he had promised to Abraham and just as he promised to Abraham. Behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. So right here off the bat, God's reminding them that what he had said in Genesis 1, what he had reaffirmed in Genesis 15, he's doing it. He is doing what he said. He is keeping his covenant and blessing his people because his grace, like I said, is the foundation for this covenant. His grace is the means by which we enter into a relationship with God. It does not hinge on us. It's by God's grace alone. So God is, in this in this first portion of Deuteronomy, we're seeing that God has fulfilled his promise to give Abraham a nation, multiple seed. He's made him a, a, a numerous people. And... He's now preparing them to enter into the land that he had promised Abraham with, with the assumption that given that they have the seed, given that they have the land, the last part is that they would then be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. So verse 11 says, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you in your strife? And what's really interesting here is that Moses is saying, I'm not sufficient for the task of leading this people. And what's even more interesting, this word that we're seeing here, he's not able to bear them. I cannot bear you. That's the same word at the beginning of Exodus 19 that God used to describe how he 
bore the people out of Egypt and has brought them now into covenant with him at Sinai. So what, this, what Moses is hinting at here is that, one, we need a better Moses, and two, that Moses is going to have to be a Moses that can do what God can do. That Moses has come. Jesus Christ has come. He's a better Moses, and he is God who is able to bear us. And so I, I think we see a hint of this in Numbers 24. The king, we looked at this passage a couple weeks ago. The king that's promised in Numbers 24 is going to be coming out of Egypt. He's going to be reliving the life of Israel. And he's talked about as being a, a lion of a king. And God is described in other passages, I think even in Numbers, as being a lion himself. So the king's going to be God. And he's going to do what Israel could not do and bear Israel because they cannot bear themselves. And even their leader Moses can't bear them. God keeps his covenant. And we see that this has all come to fruition in Christ. We see that because of Christ, Moses is hoping here that uh, they would be made a thousand times as many as you are and bless you. He's, he's hoping for a greater blessing for an even greater number of people. And Christ has brought that about. He has brought about the ultimate blessing. He, he is the one who by his defeat of Satan, sin, and death has brought us near to God and has brought that gospel to all the nations of the earth and is doing so even now. Greater blessing to even more people. What Moses is hoping for, Christ has brought through Jesus Christ. Or God has brought through Jesus Christ. So then Moses says, Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. So in the immediate, Moses has a solution for his need for help with leadership. The, the fulfillment has not come yet, and so what he does is he calls the people to, to choose men who are demonstrating godliness to come and help him in this task of leadership. And it's interesting, the idea of how they're qualified, that they would be wise, understanding, and experienced. This is just in line with what we see in, in passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. The qualification to lead in the household of God, to lead the people of God, is that you'll be managing your own household well. That your own actions in the community would, would already be reflecting the glory of God. So it is that smaller faithfulness that leads to greater responsibility which calls for greater faithfulness. So the, the men that Moses wants them to choose are the sorts of men who are exhibiting godliness. And so we're seeing here that throughout every point in redemptive history, God has called men to bless God's people, to lead God's people, and to care for them. And we see the, the early instances of this. Like If you want to look at the very earliest instance of this, you could look at Genesis 5. That Adam, I, I, I interpret Adam as responding in faith even after the fall. And then he has his son, Seth. And, and, and in Genesis 5, you have this, this line that is faithful to God. They are led by their head, Adam. Um, and so you, you see how male leadership, even from the beginning, is supposed to trickle down into generations and to bless those under its care. Certainly, not all of the fullness of what God had promised and intended came through the first Adam. But... We see how the second Adam has come, and as we were discussing, has brought this great blessing. And this new Adam is so better that he, he doesn't actually need the additional leadership to help him out. And yet he does choose to call men to lead in families and in churches because he wants to display his glory through his image bearers. So it's not that he needs pastors. It's not that he needs men. It is his gracious and sovereign choice to display his glory in this way. 
we see uh, the passages that, that Moses is alluding to here. There's kind of a mirror here between uh, Exodus 18 and Numbers 11. Two, two instances where, where the, the people obviously need leadership. And what Moses is saying here, <laughs> he's right. They were hard to lead. They were, they were stubborn. They were hard of heart. And so I think these passages, this goes back to, I had made that chiasm to show that there's these mirrored things in the book of, uh, or in the, the first five books of the Bible, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. These mirrored episodes, I think, are made to push us towards the middle of the book to show that God knows his people are hard to lead, that they are sinful. And he's going to provide that atoning answer that's at the middle of Leviticus. He knows our sinfulness. He knows our need. And he's going to provide it. And so in a similar vein, God's providing the leadership that will lead them towards that, that cleansing. It's interesting here. The Numbers 11 passage I'm alluding to, Moses takes these 70 elders to, to give them a measure of the Spirit of God that is on him. And when uh, Moses returns to the camp, Joshua confronts him and says, there's these two that didn't go, and yet they still receive the Spirit. And he wants, essentially, Moses to rebuke him. And Moses' response is to hope for the day when all of God's people would receive the Spirit of God. And so my, my interpretation of the table of nations in Genesis um, is that there are 70 nations and that the re repetition of 70 at the beginning of Exodus and then in a passage like Numbers 11, is uh, I would see that as being a connection, showing that God is working through Israel to undo Babel. And I think Numbers 11 adds a note to that. God's going to pour out his spirit on his people and undo Babel. And we see exactly this happen in Acts chapter 2. What Moses was waiting for, God has provided. God's poured out his spirit on his people in Acts 2. They proclaim the gospel of the good shepherd, the better Moses. And, and through that spirit of the gospel is undoing Babel. And so the point of all that and all that we're seeing here is that we need men to act like men and care for God's people. God is working through men to lead the church and through the church to spread this gospel to the ends of the earth. And this isn't, this isn't just a point that runs throughout Scripture and is just kind of a footnote in Deuteronomy. I think the opposite is true. In Deuteronomy 8, God's going to describe how he's relating to Israel as his son, that he is, a, he is faithfully disciplining Israel as a son. And so, so that's showing us that God is the exemplar. He's the, the chief example of what it means to do what he's going to say in Deuteronomy 6, that the people of Israel would teach their children to love the Lord their God. That's what God's doing. That's what men are supposed to be imitating, is what God does for his people. And then that's waiting for the son, um, the seed, who's going to ultimately be the king who fulfills Deuteronomy 17 by keeping the word of the father. And we see that, that getting clarified in 2 Samuel 7, that the son of David would be a son to God. And just as Israel was called to be a son to God, the son of David's going to be what they couldn't be. He's going to fulfill what they weren't and what they needed. And so to, to kind of just connect the dots here, Deuteronomy is about Jesus, and Jesus is the man. He is masculinity personified and exemplified. So like I said, masculinity, biblically understood, is anything but toxic. It is godliness and blessing to God's people. You see this in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul tells them at the, at the end of this book to act 
like men, to stand firm in the faith. By their acting like men, they are protecting the church. They're protecting the women and the children around them and caring for these precious ones. And so in a way similar um, to this passage and, and what Moses is recounting, we see a similar dynamic in Acts 6 where there's more leadership needed in the church in Acts 6. The widows need to be fed, and so they need people to manage that. And so the congregation is tasked to look at those men who are already exhibiting godliness and to call them to this service of deaconing. And so that, I think, sets the template of how the people of God should be looking at examples of godliness, especially in the men around them, and then appointing them to, to these offices of elder and deacon. And then those men who are in those offices, they need to drink deeply of their example. Because the, the situation is one where the elders that God has provided for us here, these are men who have the spirit forever in a way that's even more significant than what we're seeing with these leaders who are in Israel. So if we have a better gifting of leadership, we should take it even more seriously. We should be all the more willing to follow the example and to walk as they walk, exuding Christ. So verse 14 says, And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. And in this passage, the, the tasks that uh, Moses is giving to these men, they, they're both judicial and civil, and they're also military. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. We saw this in Ezekiel 34. I talked about it from, from the, the beginning of Genesis. There's this dynamic of doing the work here, cultivating, properly judging, but then also, as is needed, marshalling the army to protect those under the care as well. Um, the uh, Founders podcast is called The Sword and the Trowel. Um, so it's a shovel and a sword. You're supposed to to dig and cultivate and work, and it's good. And then as necessary to take up the sword and to protect and, and to secure those under your care. And it seems as that these men that Moses is calling are to do that as well. And so like I was mentioning, the reason they're being called to this task is because they have demonstrated a faithfulness in already doing it. They are wise and understanding and experienced. They're already acting as men, and so they are giving, being given a further um, task, a further expansion of their, of their sphere of authority and responsibility. And so why that's really helpful for us, obviously, like I talked about, in the context of the church, we need to be looking to uh, men setting this example in, in smaller areas and, and then considering how they might fulfill even greater responsibilities. But it's also just teaching us how to live godly, live a godly life, how to walk out godliness. And it goes back to what I had mentioned earlier, which is that we need to subject every area of our life to God in obedience. There's no sphere of life that we get to exempt from the Lordship of Christ. It's all his. And at every moment there's not like, well, I'm going to take five minutes each year to really just live for myself. No. The God of history calls all of those moments, all of those minutes, all of those seconds, his. And so these men have been qualified 
in the small, which shows us that if we want to pursue godliness, we must subject every little area in every little moment to God in submission. We do not get to exempt the little parts because that is full rebellion. So Moses is instructing them about these men and what they are to do. And then he specifies more of what they are to do. Specifically on the judicial side, I'm going to read verse 16 again here. He says, And I charged your judges at the time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. This is really helpful. If we want to understand what justice is, as God defines it, we're seeing it. Justice is impartiality, equality before the law. If you'll flip over with me to Exodus 23, within the, the covenant at Sinai, Moses is restating some things here that were stated at greater length in Exodus 23, so I think it would help us. And we'll talk about this. There's a lot of definitions of justice that are thrown around nowadays that have very little to do with what God has said is justice. And God's the one who gets to define it. So we're going to look at Exodus 23 because this is one of the most helpful passages in defining justice. I'm going to point something out right off the bat. Verses 1 through 3 are going to look really similar to verses 6 through 8. And um, then verses 4 and 5 are going to look really similar to verse 9. So it's kind of like an A, B, A, B sort of structure. And I'll explain why that's important. So if you'll just bear with me, it's going to, I'm going to hopefully make this clear. So you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So what God has just said is that we cannot just assume that because a bunch of people say an outcome should happen in court that they must be right. It is far better to stand with God than to stand with the many. So God's telling them, you don't just join with the many, you do what's right. And the impartiality goes all the way to not even being partial to the poor. He's saying when you're being impartial, it, it, it might even be hard on your conscience. You can't just say because this person's poor, I must lean in to give them favor. No. He's saying we have to judge impartially. And it, if you see here, verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. God's showing that when we are to do proper justice and evaluation, it doesn't even matter if it's our enemy. We should still treat them impartially and love them as image bearers. He's saying true justice is impartiality, even down to where it hurts. And then I think verse 6 is mirroring what we had seen in, in verse 1. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So he's saying it on the other side now. Just because someone's rich doesn't mean you just side with them. 
Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. It's, it's helpful to remember that we might be tempted to render an unjust judgment in a situation, but there's going to be a final judgment. We won't be passing the final one, and our whatever we do now is going to be evaluated by God, and we need to keep that in mind. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. That's just like what he was saying with the enemy. Even the person that you might be least inclined to give justice to, you must give them justice. God is defining justice as equality before the law, impartiality before the law. If you'll turn back over to to Deuteronomy 1 with me. What we're seeing here in God's word, defining justice, is not the social justice that is circulating in the air today. Social justice is defined today defines equity as an equality of outcome. They define equity, they define righteousness as equality of outcome. But that's neither logical nor biblical. And I'll start with the logical and then we'll we'll look at it biblically speaking. It's not logical. There's a a fantastic book by a a scholar named Thomas Sowell. He's not a Christian, but his book is super helpful. And he, he looks at a few different studies. One of the studies that was particularly interesting in it is he looked at sibling groups. And what he found, same household, same parents, everything. And what he found is that only children and firstborn children vastly outperformed, and consistently so, their siblings. The question is why? It's because they get more individualized attention at a younger age because they're the first ones born. So he, he looked at another study to kind of bolster this notion. And this study looked at um, people who had the same IQs. You, you would expect people who have the same level of intelligence to essentially have the same level of outcomes. And that was not the case. Wide differences in outcome, same IQ. And what was one of the differentiating factors that he found? Family. Who raised them? What values were instilled in these people? And so what we see with these, these claims about social injustice, the studies that are done to examine these claims keep coming up with these similar results, which is that where there's, where there's bad outcomes, there's typically not dads. There aren't men leading and caring for these people. And all of God's people should have said amen. And yet the, the hypocrisy of the social justice movement is rather obvious. It's, it's an obvious problem. We'll talk about why it should be so obvious from the scriptures. It should be an obvious problem. And, it, and it's, it's obvious not just because of what the Bible says, we also see how it's an obvious problem because it's not just one ethnicity that's dealing with this problem. This is in so many different ethnicities within the United States. Fatherlessness is a rampant problem in our country. And the reason it won't be talked about is because the solution is rather obvious as well, which is that we need God the Father. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to embrace biblical patriarchy and come to the Father through the Son and through that to find true wealth in restoration. But that is not part and parcel of what they are propagating. Because the goal is not improvement with this social justice movement. The goal is destruction. Carl Truman uh, wrote a book recently talking about how what the social justice movement is essentially is just an anti-culture. It's not that it wants to build something better. It just wants to destroy the West. And do you know what substance 
is the sort of thing that just destroys. It's toxic. It's sin. If we want to talk about what's toxic, it's rather obvious what it is. It's not masculinity. It's not biblical masculinity. It's helpful here. (laughs) We're talking about what true justice is, and God's wisdom is obviously timeless and on display here. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. This is where so much of the social justice movement plays is in its cancel culture. We're going to come after you. God's saying we must not fear man. We must fear the Lord. And, I mean, I think we could think of a few examples of social pressure being put on court cases to render verdicts, regardless of the evidence, regardless of partiality. We see this everywhere. We can't, we can't watch, we essentially can't watch any network news nowadays and expect to get truth or justice from that. We have to be discerning. So what we're seeing here, God is telling us that equity, right judgment, is equality before the law. And there's going to be unequal outcomes, and we have to be okay with that, because God's the one who gets to judge not us. You see this really explicitly in the parable of the talents. They don't all get the same reward. God is going to render a right judgment and reward accordingly. And we have to be okay with that as creatures. We don't get to to criticize the judge. But this should help us as well. God does reward us for our faithfulness. You're faithless. You are saved by faith. You're saved by grace alone. I've said that already. I'll say it again. But you also have to keep in mind is that you will be rewarded greater or lesser depending on what you do in light of your faith. Every moment we have to surrender to Christ will be rewarded. And like I was mentioning with with some of the things I have to reckon with that I've done in ministry as far as supporting models that I just don't think are biblical anymore, I'm not expecting a great reward from that. So we we have to understand that because there's not equivalent rewarding for those who believe in Jesus, we should live wanting the reward. That should spur us to greater faithfulness. So that's, that is a hard teaching. So I'm going to try to help us by defining wealth and understanding wealth biblically so that way we can look at this idea of social justice even more biblically because it, so much of it swirls around this idea of who has riches and who does not. So let's define wealth. Is wealth just having worldly possessions? No, ultimately not. Moth and rust will destroy those things. And in addition to that, Jesus tells us it's it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So riches, in worldly terms, are not necessarily a blessing. So um, one of the additional things we have to keep in mind is, especially if we have an inclination to more worldly possessions, this is, where, again, where history helps us. If we look in the grand scope of time and even space, as far as people around the world today, we are so ridiculously wealthy. Even if we're poor in comparative terms to other people in the United States, we are such an immensely wealthy people. And we would do well to acknowledge that. Um, Doug Wilson had a helpful blog post this week just saying, because we are just we're, – we're the richest people to ever – be on this planet. We should be the most thankful. 
there's a proper response of thankfulness that we should have. And yet, what kind of culture do we live in? A grievance culture. We complain so often, and I am saying that as one who's guilty of it. We are so profoundly wealthy, we're so profoundly blessed, and yet we complain. And we should be thankful. So would it be better to just be poor? No. Poverty doesn't save you. It is only if you are poor in spirit, if you are repentant, if you are humble before the Lord, knowing your sinfulness, it is only that sort of poverty, the poverty of spirit, that humility, that will exalt you. And that humility, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. If you are humble before the Lord, he will exalt you. And you will have true riches. Because true wealth is to have your sins forgiven by the precious blood of Christ. To be made right before God. To be adopted as a son of God through the son of God. And to, through him, inherit a new creation. That is incomparable wealth. We must not be distracted by this temporal world and think in terms of worldly wealth. And social justice with its Marxist roots and materialistic ends is seeking to identify injustices and rectify that with theft. And sin added to sin will never create righteousness. And what makes it almost more troubling is the inclination it puts into people to look at Caesar and to assume that Caesar is father. The early church had wanted nothing to do with the idea that Caesar is Lord. The idea that Caesar is father is certainly in the ballpark of just as damaging. There's only one God. And that father, the, 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 the one who reigns and gives every good and perfect gift to his people, he is the one who gives true wealth and blessing. He is the one we must depend on. To, to get caught up in this worldliness, to do injustice in this way, is to be like Esau and to trade your birthright for stew. This is folly. This is sin. And just as I was saying, the instructions here for these judges about how they are to render justice, God in his omniscience, his perfect timeless wisdom, has given them instruction that they need to be careful to continue to do justice regardless of the ethnicity of the parties involved. Did you see that? Verse 16, And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. So what he's telling us here, certainly there were some restrictions in Old Testament Israel. Um, a foreigner could not come and be the king. To be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And yet you could be a citizen in Israel and receive an inheritance just like Caleb did. And, and the key to that, we talked about this in Sunday school a bit, how that would happen is if you were circumcised and came under this covenant. And we see that in Exodus 12, which we talked about this morning as well. The people are in Egypt, and Exodus 12 tells us that there was a mixed multitude that came out with them. Even from the beginning of Israel's inception, God is blessing the nations through them. And the instructions there in Exodus 12 about how they can partake of the Passover by circumcision is there for a reason, because they have to deal with this now, because God's blessing the nations through them. So uh, we're going to see later on in Deuteronomy 31, it's recounting who all Israel is. It's the men, it's the women, it's the children, and it's the same word here. Uh, that's translated alien. 
All Israel includes the alien. They are citizens all the same. And so the point here that I want us to get is that ethnicity was never supposed to divide the people of God. It was never supposed to divide the people of God. And so when we're looking at what God says about justice, we have to understand that whether it's an instance of church discipline or someone claiming that our culture has um, embedded systemic racism, the facts matter. We have to look at the evidence and determine if this is true or not. It cannot come down to how strongly we feel it. We cannot even just default to giving partiality to the poor. God's word has commanded us not to. We have to be impartial. We have to render evaluation as God commanded. And we're going to see how Deuteronomy 19 plays into the understanding of how to do church discipline in Matthew 18. So this, this has some real ramifications for what we're going to do in the church. We have to, if, if we're going to claim that someone's in sin, we have to have the evidence to substantiate such a claim, and then that claim is going to have to be weighed against the standard of God's word, not the standard of what we think is sin or not, against what God's word says is sin or not. So when we talk about systemic racism, it's, it's legitimate to look at the evidence and to consider it. It's legitimate, legitimate to ask about how does the fatherlessness or how does fatherlessness play into this? Why aren't we talking about abortion with this as well? Those are legitimate questions that do need to be asked. Um, additionally, to, to give an example, if if someone comes up to, to to one of us and says, you know, that elder over there, you know, he leaves his he leaves his wife like like he's her leader or something. Don't expect that to come before the church as an as an actual legitimate disqualification. What you're gonna get is, yeah, we're really appreciative of his example as well. God's word is the standard of what's sin and what's not sin. Churches have been, and so they are, and it has already happened, that churches are dying for fear of man and unwillingness to render judgment according to God's word. They are fearing man instead of fearing God. And I think the social justice issue has really both exposed and expedited some of that decay that has been happening. And I think part of that goes back to this unfaithfulness on the topic of masculinity. We've been scared to say the patriarchy word. If we're scared to affirm men as men, this is where we're going to go. We've seen it. So I'm grateful for where we are in our church, and I want us to abound all the more in that faithfulness to what God calls men to be and what God calls women to be so that we will be blessed. And I think Pastor Jeff and I were talking about this this week. One of the <clears throat> doctrines that's so important that I think has been so neglected, and Pastor Jeff was pointing this out, and I, I think he's absolutely right. The doctrine of the image of God is so pivotal. If we get the image of God rightly, a couple of things are going to come from it. There's many things. I'm just going to discuss a couple. One of them is that it doesn't matter what the ethnicity of the person is. We're all image bearers. We're all made in God's image and therefore are due a special honor. Skin color is irrelevant to that. So there, there goes the ethnicity issue when we talk about the image of God. What else happens with the image of God? I talked about how we have created, we have a, a grievance culture in us. We've done ministry in such a way that's focused on you and your demographics and turned we've turned ourselves and other people in on their own navels instead of looking to Christ. If we properly understood the image of God, 
it would help us understand that when we stand before the Lord, and, and many people have endured many legitimate uh, trials, been harmed in many significant ways, and yet regardless of how we've been offended, when we stand before God, we don't stand before him as a victim. We stand before him as an offender. And the image of God tells us that. Because our primary job is to image God throughout the world. And even if we are wronged, we can still image God. And even where we are hurt, God can restore that. Too many churches and too many pastors have been afraid to talk about the image of God in substantive ways that would actually, by that strong grace, help the people in their church. The fall has been massive. God is reminding the people here at the beginning of Deuteronomy, the blessing it is, the blessing it is to have godly male leadership who will render right judgment so that they know the judgment of the Lord. And in knowing that judgment, that they would be blessed and shepherded well, like we were looking at in Ezekiel 34. These are the sorts of men that will help lead the people to enter into the presence of God and to remain in the presence of God. And what Moses and these leaders are typifying, we have in full. Christ has come. He has come as the man, the Adam, as we were singing about this morning. And because he went into the exile of death on our behalf, bore our sins in his body on the tree, we are now brought to life in him that we might live for righteousness. Because the, the very Spirit of God dwells in us forever. So we have everything that's hoped for here. We have it in full because of what Christ has done. And he keeps us near to God. He brings us into the presence of God and he keeps us there forever until we enter into the new creation to see God face to face and be with him. Our status as offenders is removed. We are justified and declared right because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The tears and pain of how we have been mistreated will be wiped away. None of that will remain. And we can be sure of it because Christ has risen. This new creation I'm talking about, it's already started because he has come out of that grave. So we can be sure that that hope is true. And we have a, we have a further blessing here. Like I was mentioning, Jesus does not need help. He is omnipotent. And yet he chooses to ins install elders in his church to portray his glory. And we have been profoundly blessed by our elders who have navigated some of these really tough issues with such faithfulness. So we should be all the more grateful for godly male leadership because of God giving us such uniquely blessed and, and competent male leadership in the church. We need to follow them, all of us, but men especially. So if you will, just turn over to Exodus 34 with me. Uh, there's discussion about, I mean, this is going to be an important passage. That's not up for discussion. How important this passage is, um, is something to discuss. The, the pastor um, who I learned hermeneutics from mainly, he wrote an entire book arguing that this passage is perhaps the most, pa most important passage in all of Scripture because God is disclosing who he is in such a unique way to Moses. So this is what, the Lord says in Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Something that is so pivotal for us to understand, especially as men, is that regardless of whether we want to be the leader or not, what God is saying and what God has done in creation, what he has designed, we are going to have the predominant impact on those under us spiritually, whether we want to or not. He just said, if we are faithful, he will bless that faithfulness to generations. He's also said that if we are not, it will also be visited on the generations. As men, we will have an impact on those under our care, whether we want to or not. You see this dynamic, like we've been talking about, for an elder or a deacon to be qualified for their office, they have to manage their own household well. And then if you if you wanted to, in Ephesians 4, Paul's talking about how these, these elders and teachers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're to build one another up in the church. But then he gives more detail to that as you go further into the book. What, what does that look like? It's men who lead their wives. It's men who raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's men who go out into their workplace and work heartily unto the Lord. And that's described then in Ephesians chapter 6 as this is our spiritual warfare. What we do as men in leadership immensely matters. And I think this is, this is exactly why America is dying around us. I don't think our president is helping anything. I think he's expediting the death. It would certainly be nice if people voted better. But the simple fact of the matter is that what we need is repentance, and voting better is not repentance. Until the United States recognizes its sin and repents of how we've acted as as individuals, how men have acted in their marriages, in their parenting, in the workplace, in the church, until there is repentance, there will be no restoration in this country. There might be a slower decay, but there will still be death nonetheless. So the question that is placed at our feet, for all of us, but men especially, are we quick to repent? And for men, perhaps the more pressing question for us is, if, if someone were to ask your wife and your children where they've learned how to repent, would we be the answer? We're going to see more in Deuteronomy about, about this dynamic of men needing to teach their children. And we talked about the dynamic of protecting, protecting those under our care, not just from intruders, but from their own sin and from our sin as well. If we have not taught our families how to repent, we have done them an immense disservice. And when I say that, when I say we need to exemplify repentance, I do not mean that there's strife in the home. And if I just own that, even though I didn't necessarily do anything wrong, if I just apologize and lie to make someone feel better, to restore some level of peace, that's not repentance. I think we've been often taught that you just apologize and it'll just make everyone happy and you'll be fine. No, that's not God's standard. That's actually partiality. That's going to harm your family. What I'm saying is we need to look at the standard of God's word and look at where we have failed. And before God and those affected by our sin, usually starting with our wife and our children, we need to own that and apologize and ask forgiveness and lead the sort of prayer that does that sort of repenting. And I think this is a weak area 
So I'm, I'm hoping to pinpoint it so that way we can really grow uh, together in this. Um, I think in God's providence, we've had instances where I've had to repent from the pulpit. Um, Jeff had an instance of repenting from the pulpit. Then we had we had a brother who was visiting from out of state on his way back home, and he had been a believer for some decades, I think. And after one of those times, he said something to me to the effect of how he had never seen that from a pulpit, never seen a pastor repent from the pulpit. Decades of being a believer. So because we have not seen it exemplified um, from pulpits over the years in American evangelicalism, I think this is probably just going to be a weak area for us that we need to focus on and grow in. So I'm trying to pinpoint it for that reason. We need to set the tone of repentance in our families. And the beauty is, is that we have the opportunity to do that today. If we've not been repenting, and this is for all of us, not just the men, if any of us has not been repenting, we have the moment right now to turn from that sin. This hard word of the Lord is here to restore. This is the shepherd calling the sheep back from the ravine. That's a grace when he calls out. So we would do well to treat it as such. And the, 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 the grace that comes from responding to the call of the Lord to repent just cascades. Because when we actually repent according to God's standard, that's going to help us, especially as men. When we have to call our wives and our children to repent, if they know daddy's willing to repent when it's necessary, they're going to trust us more to say, you know what, he's confronting me about something that I need to repent of. And I know he has my, my best interests at heart. We need to set the example of repentance, and that will help all of our shepherding be more faithful and more effective. So we're seeing the grace here of God to give godly men who will render right judgment, who will encourage us to walk in faithfulness to the Lord according to God's judgments. And God has sent his son to take the punishment our sins would deserve on himself, that we might receive the grace of God through him. And we have further blessing of having these elders whose example we all should follow. And we as men especially need to lean into that. And, you know, certainly none of us is doing this perfectly. But I hope you caught this as well from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And sin. If we will repent, if we will confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance is grace. The word of the Lord here, the instruction to come under his right judgments, to exhibit this sort of male leadership, this is a grace and call for us. This is the sort of call and faithfulness that results in those we love most being saved from hell. So we would do well to follow it.